Hey, everybody. We want to thank you all who have supported the show. And anybody who is interested in supporting the show can check us out on Patreon. Patreon.com slash xchateau, or you can find the link on xchateau.com. We have over 100 episodes, and by becoming a patron, you can get access to 100-plus episodes. Welcome to X Chateau. X Chateau. The podcast that navigates the business of wine with unique perspectives and insights. With your host, Robert Vernick and Peter Young. Welcome to this episode of X Chateau. We're continuing to talk about sustainability. The fourth of seven strands, not pillars anymore, of sustainability and the definition of sustainability, according to Anna Britton, Executive Director of Napa Green is integrated pest management and biodiversity. Anna, can you tell us why this is an important part of sustainability? Yeah, so this gets out there into using nature, working with nature rather than trying to control nature, right? And one of the kind of criticisms the wine industry sometimes gets is that it's a monoculture. And there's all of these benefits to adding more biodiversity into this system. So things like compost in the soil and cover crops, hedgerows along the side that are attracting beneficial insects. These are all things that actually store more carbon. So it's a proactive climate climate action measure storing carbon in the soil, but they also increase water and nutrient retention. They increase the resilience of the vines. And then there's things like bringing in birds, hawks, bluebirds, these things that are eating unwanted insects or eating unwanted rodents and just helping serve the resilience of the business and the quality of the wine while working in partnership with nature. And of course, your guests love to see that as well. We don't need bees and butterflies for winemaking, but guests love love to see those bees and butterflies out there as well. So this is a really fun area of sustainability. Welcome to this episode of X Chateau. Today, we're continuing our series on sustainability. And today, we're going to be talking about integrated pest management and biodiversity with Dan Fishman, the winemaker at Donham Estate. Donham Estate is a winery based in Carneros on the Sonoma side, and they have uh, estate vineyards all across Sonoma. And just for full disclosure, Donham is a client of mine. Dan, welcome to the show. Can you please give me and Peter a brief overview of your background and that of Dunham Estate? Certainly, yeah. Thanks for having me, guys. Really a pleasure to talk to you about this. It's definitely a topic that's really important to to me personally and and to Dunham Estate. So I'm really glad to have the opportunity to talk to you about it. I've been with Dunham as a winemaker since 2012 and took over the vineyards and, and in charge of the farming since 2019. My first job in wine was actually as a harvest intern for Donham in 2007. So I've been around the the winery for a long time. Donham itself was founded in 2001 in Carneros. And the idea was kind of to create the ultimate Pinot Noir. So it's kind of been the focus from the beginning to make the best Pinot that we can. Started in Carneros with just Pinot and slowly have added Chardonnay and then added some other regions as well in the Russian River and soon in the Sonoma Coast, just coming online. We recently got our CCOF organic certification and our ROC regenerative organic certification. So that's been a big focus for us the last few years. Well, it's uh, they should change your title to a vine your own if you're basically in charge of both the Vidi and the Vidi. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's a title that's tough to get away with, I think. Looks aggressive. <laughs> it looks aggressive. It's got a V in it. <laughs> <laughs> So this is part of a broader series on sustainability. What does sustainability mean to you and how does integrated pest management or IPM and biodiversity fit into that? 
Yeah. So, I mean, I think sustainability is such a big topic. It'd be interesting for me to go back and listen to your whole series. I think there's the obvious definition, you know, just being able to do what we're doing, which is grow grapes and make wine kind of indefinitely into the future. But what does that actually mean, I think, is where it gets more interesting. Uh, integrative pest management or IPM. I think IPM is, is a really critical first step. And, and what it is to me is, is a change in philosophy. So I think that with conventional farming, you know, the attitude is essentially to more or less exploit the land resources you have to maximize probably one or several cash crops. So with IPM, I think the key part is the integrative or the integrated part. And, and so that's really looking at the system as a whole. And so rather than thinking of exploiting land, it's more about working with the land, kind of creating an environment in which the crop that you're focused on can thrive, but really thinking about the entire ecosystem and really how each decision is going to affect that. So I think, you know, maybe the conventional way is very reductionist, focused on, oh, there's problem A, let's find solution A. Whereas with IPM and, and more broadly organics and biodynamics and that, that whole realm, the idea is to more think of, okay, what is the overall goal of the farm? How do I address problem A? What are the trade-offs of what I'm going to do? And how does that kind of all fit together in, into a holistic approach? So I think that's really key. And I think the biodiversity piece of that is that there is biodiversity. And you know, even if you wanted to, you're not going to get rid of that. So the idea is rather than trying to do so, which really is, as we've seen, I think over the last 50 or 100 years, is very destructive to the overall environment when you only focus on your one crop. The idea is to embrace the biodiversity and then start thinking of how can I make the biodiversity an advantage rather than a disadvantage. So looking at IPM, I see it as like a series of practices that you can choose based on what your estate vineyards need. I'm curious on what elements of IPM that Dunham actually puts into practice and, and anywhere you can give like specific examples would be great. So like I said, it's, it's in a way it's kind of, of of a systems way of saying or like a complex system way of thinking. So it's to an extent just thinking of how all the things interrelate and that can, that goes all the way from the microscopic level all the way up to the large macro level. So on the large scale, you know, we use sheep to do the weeding in the winter. That means that we're cutting down on tractor work. So there's less tractor passes, less fuel use, to be clear there, in that case, you know, the, the definition of pest is really broad, right? So in that case, the pest is the weeds, right? Because that's something that we need to manage that can be a detriment to our grapevines um, through competition. Maybe that's not what you think of when you think of an agricultural pest, but it, a weed is a form of pest. And so to manage that, we would use sheep rather than a tractor, which could be tilling or could be mowing or whatever it might be. But by using the sheep, we are able to eliminate that tractor pass or passes. And then also the sheep are bringing compost, you know, back into the vineyard as well while they're eating. So it's sort of increasing the diversity. We have another animal. We have another form of compost on the property and we're managing a pest. So that would be a large scale, you know, and then on the complete opposite end of the spectrum, we use compost teas. And so a compost tea is a very biologically active spray and we might spray that on the soil or the canopy, but say on the canopy, what you're doing is you're introducing a vast number of microbes. And those are many different beneficial effects, but one of them is they're going to compete with some of the microbes that can cause problems like mildew. So there you're, you know, you're again with biodiversity, introducing something that's going to compete with your pests. So I think there's a ton of examples that we could get into. We use chickens and ducks throughout the vineyard to eat ground insects. 
But again, the key is just sort of thinking of the whole system and how to manage it in a way. And I think that's the other key element of IPM that you kind of have to wrap your head around is that it's not about eliminating the pest. It's about managing it. And so like weeds are a great example. It's, you know, does there have to be zero weeds? No, that's not necessary to have a good vineyard. So what you want to do is just manage them to a level where they're not competing so much with your vines that it's an issue. And, you know, you can go down the line with any, whether it's an insect, microbe, whatever it is, there's sort of a manageable level that you can deal with. And so the idea is to just manage to that level, but not go to the extreme of trying to eliminate every pest. So it's been kind of a cycle and you're just trying to make it into the acceptable levels. Let's say the, the sheep, for example, like what are the key, I mean, you mentioned the not having to do the tractor passes and you mentioned the teas having the, you know, competing with other kind of microbes on the canopy. Are there other benefits outside of those? Or do you start to see synergies as you start to do multiple of these practices together? I think that's exactly right. I mean, that you start to see the synergies. And I think, for example, the compost tea that we spray on the canopy, when the leaves fall off at the end of the season, then those microbes start decomposing the leaves faster and that returns those nutrients to the soil. And then by the same token, you have the sheep that's being returned to the soil in terms of, you know, the waste from the sheep. I'm trying to think of like the the perfect example, and maybe there isn't one because I think it is such a holistic thing, but the idea is definitely thinking of the cycle. So specifically the nitrogen cycle, right? Because getting into organics, you know, which is maybe a different topic, but when you eliminate synthetic nitrogen, that's a big limiting factor is how do you get nitrogen into your soil? So I think that the nitrogen cycle is really important. And, and a lot of these things fit into that. Just think of just kind of the natural life cycle. I think that actually relates back to your question about sustainability it's maybe a weakness of the environmental movement overall that there's sort of an idea that sustainable means static, which of course like nothing in nature is ever static. So it's not about creating a system that just stays the same indefinitely. It's about creating a system that's resilient to whatever it might face. So, you know, if you have a dry year, you're going to face different pressures than a wet year. But if you have a natural system, you know, that's like a forest, it's naturally resilient because it's evolved over time with all those factors. And so as things change, there's things that can step into each gap and kind of fill in what's missing. And so when you have the opposite, which would be like a monoculture, you know, any something can really mess that up really quickly because you're, you've only got that one, say, grapes or whatever it might be, it can easily be destroyed. Whereas when you have a, a whole system, you kind of got a system of competition that keeps everything in check. I don't know if that, that makes sense. Yeah, that makes sense. One quick follow up on that. I'm assuming that you didn't roll out all of these practices at once and that you chose which one you thought would have the highest value and rolled that out first. Is that true or did you kind of do a swath of them together? Yeah, a, a lot of it came in together because we made the commitment in 2019 to switch to organic. So with that change, you know, there's a whole host of things that have to change all at once. But that said, a lot of things have also been brought in over time. To me, if you had to point to one thing that is the biggest shift, it's stopping using herbicides because that's just kind of like done as a matter of course in a conventional vineyard because it's expensive to do it other ways. But what that does is the herbicides, yes, they kill weeds, but they also kill all the fungus, the mycorrhizal fungi and, and others in your soil. And so that kind of creates a system. It's, it's sort of like a negative feedback loop where once you interrupt that system, which is the the nitrogen cycle, which the fungus is a key part of, then you're, you've got to introduce synthetic fertilizer and so on. And so I think that the first step 
is eliminating herbicides and that allows you to start having living soil. And then that kind of creates the background or the foundation that you need to start working in a more natural way without synthetics. And so that's kind of the first thing that we did was like day one, as soon as I was in charge of vineyards, never spraying Roundup again. And then from there, kind of introducing things. And some of the things are relatively new. The chickens and ducks are just in the last year. The sheep were after a couple of years. So it's definitely a process. And depending on, you know, to me, the, the herbicide thing was number one. So that was the whole vineyard all at once. Other changes we might try just in one block and see how that goes. So it really depends on specifically what the item is. So based on those learnings of, you know, reducing herbicides and then rolling out these different practices, what have been the impacts on the quality and quantity of the grapes or the end wines? Yeah, well, and, and what's interesting is, of course, we're kind of still in the process of seeing that because even though we started these practices in 2019, you know, you, it takes three years to be certified, which I think is kind of based on the idea that it takes three years for you know residuals to leave the soil. I don't know. You know, that's obviously an approximation. We started to see some pretty positive changes in terms of insect life returning to the vineyard right away. I think the soil quality, we're seeing that change happen relatively quickly, especially in Carneros, we have a really high clay content in the soil. And so when that has little or no organic matter, it gets compacted really easy. It starts, it's those soils where you see like a ton of cracking in the summer and it just looks very dry and and very dead. And we've really seen an improvement in that. So I think you're kind of looking at the soil first, watching the vines in terms of health. What's interesting um, and I know it's something we'll probably talk about is is the economics of it. But in some ways, organic is definitely more expensive. But obviously, we're uh, uh, at a price point and a, what we're going for is we're farming for quality, not for quantity. So we were always doing a lot of thinning of crop to get to the yields that we wanted. And we were also doing a lot of hedging because we had a lot of vigor. And so what we've seen with eliminating the fertilizers and, and the other steps is that vigor and crop yields theoretical crop yields have come down. But what that means for us is that we're doing less hedging and doing less thinning. So it's not actually a loss of crop in the final amount because we always wanted to have a lower crop level. And of course, that's for concentration of flavor. And that was kind of a big push for me was that I it's kind of intuitively obvious. And I think also true from our experience and other people's experience that a vine that's imbalanced that naturally sets a low crop is going to give you those flavor profiles, that concentration much better than artificially getting to that crop level by thinning. I would say on the quantity side, there hasn't been an impact in our yields because we were always looking for lower yields. And then on the quality side, I think it actually took really till this harvest, so 2022, to start seeing what I was looking for. And that's seeing the grape chemistry coming in at better balance. So that's where our sugars aren't racing ahead. So we have a nice balance between sugar and acidity. And that means less work in the winery. Basically, if, if the fruit comes in with great chemistry, we don't need to do anything to adjust. Then, you know, we can process naturally, in other words, without additives. And that's really important to me. And then I think the other component on that is the, you know, fermenting with native yeast. So, of course, when you're spraying fungicides for mildew, you're also killing off your yeast population in the vineyard. So to be able to reduce that and then bring in grapes with good chemistry and a healthy yeast population, that's really the goal for me. And I think that that will show in the wine quality in terms of complexity, balance, and ageability, especially. Could you give an example of pre this decision and, and this year's harvest, like what the grape chemistry numbers look like between those changes that you've done? In a typical vintage seven, eight years ago, 
we would probably be harvesting at, you know, sugar is 25 plus bricks. Um, and that's because we're, you know, to an extent waiting for phenolic ripeness. So flavor ripeness, we would need sugars in excess of 25 to really start getting that. It's a little bit subjective for sure, but you're not getting a lot of green flavor in the berry. So we'd be over 25 bricks. Our pH would probably be 3.7, 3.8, maybe even higher. And with a TA in the fours or low fives grams per liter. Whereas this year, we were able to harvest grapes that phenolically ripe, taste great, maybe in the 23, 23 and a half bricks range, which you, for potential alcohol, that'd be like kind of high 13s. And then pH closer to 3.5 and a TA in the high fives, maybe over six. Pretty significant changes then in that seven, eight year period then. Yeah, definitely. And of course, part of that is being able to harvest earlier. You know, you're going to obviously see a shift in the chemistry through that. So it's not 100% that like they're retaining acidity that much better, but they definitely, I think, are better balance and therefore kind of arriving at the right harvest window with better chemistry. And then you alluded to this earlier. How does this compare cost-wise when you look at the conventional versus now organic farming? Yeah, so there's definitely an investment up front to switch to organic for sure. The herbicide is a big factor. So we have a, a tool called the Clemens Weed Knife. There's several different ones on the market, but essentially it's a mechanical tractor-driven way to do undervine weed management. And that's a big, big part because obviously just going through once a year and spraying Roundup is really cheap and easy. So to get the equipment and then run it, there's that cost. Another big difference is so in Carnero specifically, we have very high mealybug pressure. And so we have to be really on top of that. I mean, I guess, sorry to take a step back, that's kind of a key to IPM and organic and biodynamic thinking in general is to really be proactive, right? So conventional farming is very reactive because you have powerful chemicals that can correct problems after the fact. Now, of course, what else are they doing is the big question. But when you eliminate that, you have to really plan ahead. And so say for mealybugs, we have people out there every day monitoring and we have you know very targeted kind of natural it's still an insecticide, but it's like an essential oil that we can spray. And if we get them early enough, that works. So that's the key is like, I think you spend a lot more time monitoring and you spend a little bit more targeted labor overall. So there's certainly that expense. On the other hand, you're saving money in other ways. So for us, in terms of fewer hedging passes, less thinning to do, and hopefully, ultimately, I think as you get a vineyard, you know, we're still in the process of this, right? We're only three or four years in. I think as you find that balance, hopefully the amount of work you're doing is actually coming down to an extent. So I think it's definitely more expensive, not as much more expensive, maybe, as people would think. It's a little bit hard. I can't really put a specific figure for us on it because we have so much vineyard in development that, of course, our farming costs are going up. And so if, if you look at it per acre, to me, it looks maybe five, seven percent more or something. It's not drastic, at least in the context of grape growing. You mentioned a bunch of animals. Are those your animals for the estate that you're, that someone's taking care of? Some are. So the ducks and chickens are, are ours and the guys are taking care of those. For the sheep, we actually use a contract grazer. So they have a large herd, uh, 500 sheep per herd. We actually use two. And so they can come in because we're fairly big, 100 acres on the a state vineyard and another 30 acres around the corner in Carneros. So for us to have like the number of sheep that it would take to do that, then we would be essentially sheep farmers as well. And so 
that's kind of our solution is to bring in a contract grazer that is able to come through, get through our vineyard in a reasonable amount of time because we have to have the sheep out of the vineyard before bud break because they'll start eating the green shoots and damaging them. So it depends. So we're kind of finding different solutions. And that's something I think that as more people switch to organic and, and other things, you start seeing these solutions for a larger scale, like the undervine weed removal is another example. Um, and I think that's really helping. So I think 20 years ago, if you were trying to do all this yourself without any, you know, any of these options, it could be much more expensive. But I think it's starting to become more reasonable as more people do it. You just, you know, start finding solutions. So I think that it's a mix for us. Some things are in-house and some are working with other people. And you mentioned Dunham has uh, vineyards in multiple locations. And I'm curious, it sounds like the sheep, you can usually just have someone point the sheep at the, <laughs> that other location and get that same result. But for the animals that you have at the estate, are you moving them around to those different locations or are they just kind of at each location? And it seems like it adds some complexity. Definitely, yeah. So some of our vineyards don't get all of the practices. Like at our Russian River Vineyard, our vineyard manager lives there and he has chickens there. So he's he's managing those chickens totally separately from the ones that are at the estate. Our vineyard on the coast, we just happen to be next to a ranch that also brings in sheep. So that's really easy. We can just open up the gate and let them do both vineyards. So it's kind of, it is a little bit about finding those solutions. And we try to do everything that we can in each vineyard, but sometimes the reality of being spread out like that is not every vineyard can have every practice every year. So it's a little bit just kind of managing what we can do. Maybe every vineyard doesn't need every practice every year as well. That's a good point too, is that some of these things are good, but not necessary. And then some things are, are necessary. And so that's kind of another part of that whole idea of IPM is like, it's a realistic philosophy, I think also, right? Where say biodynamics is a little bit more do the whole thing or you're not really biodynamic, right? I think like IPM and organics, it's a little bit working within your system to figure out what you can and can't do. And, and trying to, I guess, for lack of a better term, like, you know, not let the perfect be the enemy of the good and doing, you know, everything that you can. So to that point, you mentioned that you're certified organic now, I think certified regenerative. How does IPM fit into that or into biodynamics? Is it like required or is it, you know, just one path of solution to get where you need to go? I think IPM is sort of just like the more general version of the same philosophy, right? So the idea is that maybe the overarching philosophy is sort of to minimize your negative effects on the land or even to switch your thinking to maximize your positive effects. And so I think like with organics, the base is like an explicit list of things you're not allowed to do, right? But maybe what's missing from organics is sort of a positive philosophy. And that's where regenerative brings that. So your goal is to bring more back to the soil, bring back to the ecosystem more than you take out of it every year. And IPM kind of, I think, is, is sort of a more generalized. So people practice IPM even who are farming more or less conventionally. I think what's good about IPM is that you can apply it to any farm, any decision, you can just apply that way of thinking, which is, and for some people, you know, if, if the goal is to maximize profits, IPM can still be a part of that because it can be, how do I manage so I don't spend more money on sprays than I need to? How do I manage it so I don't have to eliminate every pest that I can find an economically feasible level of pests to deal with. So it can apply in that setting, but it applies as the overarching philosophy as well within organics and, and to an extent in biodynamics too. So I think that, again, like that, that integrated part of like thinking of the, 
the whole system as opposed to reducing it to pieces is the key thing. And I think that's part of any kind of improved attitude towards farming. And then with each step, you kind of get more specific. So then when you think about making these changes and investments in some cases, how do you think about the return on investment or ROI with IPM? And how do you make decisions about which ones you want to do versus not? Yeah, that's a good question. I think it's tough because our overall mission is to make the best wine. And so, you know, that's not to say that the ROI is not important. It's always a question because every investment we make in one area is an investment we can't make somewhere else, right? So I think it's definitely balancing in that way. So let's just to pick a ridiculous example, like I could decide that chickens and ducks are the most important thing. And then we're going to have a thousand of each. And like, we would spend so much resources managing the chicken and ducks that it would interfere with other things that we're trying to do. So I think that Again, it's sorry, I keep coming back to the same thing, but it is that integrated approach of how much of an impact is this going to make? So that's always what I think is like, you know, there's there's always new tractor implements. There's always new tools. There's always a different tack we could take on the labor front. But the question is like, how much benefit are we going to see versus like, what is the cost, whether that's time, resources, even just like where our focus is. And I think that's another key thing I think that we haven't talked about that's so important about organic and and that's where like biodynamic I think is great in terms of like where is your mental energy going so I think that you know for me that's how I think of the investment is is in all those ways not just the dollars in terms of the dollars invested again it's going to be really hard to quantify because I think as obviously you guys know the wine quality is so subjective and so how do you, you know, I think we all know it when we taste it. Um, and that's what we're looking for to be really the return is that, you know, when we taste these wines five, 10 years down the line, they have something interesting to say and they're really exciting wines. And I think like that's what drove me to this way of farming in a way is I come at it not with a farming background, but with a winemaking background. And for me, I get really excited about wines that have energy and that to me have something to say, which I take as like an expression of the land in which they came from. And and I think a lot of winemakers get to the point where you feel like your winemaking techniques have taken you as far as you, you can go. And how do you get more out of it? It has to come, it has to be there in the vineyard. You have to grow it. But to me, that's like the real return on the investment is what we get in the finished product. That's, you know, what I'm looking for. The other side of the return that I think is really important and easy to overlook is on the back end of the vineyard lifespan. And I think that that's where really getting your farming right and using these principles of IPM and organics and regenerative and focusing on the soil, you're setting yourself up for a vineyard that can last a lot longer. In California, Pinot, it's really, I would say, depressingly short-lived vineyards is the typical people are replanting every 25 or 30 years often. Not only is that expensive, you're also missing out on maybe the best 20 years of that vine's wine production. So to me, that's where the other part of the return that's, again, hard to quantify in the short term, but to have a vineyard that's going to last 50, 60 years, a Pinot vineyard, that's going to last that long, you're getting return on your investment on the other end. So I think that's the other big part of it. Wow, that, yeah, that's a, that's a really important one. It's a good point. And you mentioned that you know when you look at new practices, you're looking at what's going to give the most benefit most of your benefit is quality focused. What have been the things that you've implemented that you believe have given you that highest impact and benefit from what you've done so far? 
Well, for sure, I think getting rid of the herbicides has been the, the highest impact. Again, that's long-term in terms of soil health. There's a few things that we've done more in the short term that we've seen kind of immediate return on um, that, that are kind of interesting. One was new last year. We started working with a company called Root Applied Sciences. And basically what they do is they place little monitoring stations throughout the vineyard that are checking. It's kind of like a vacuum and it's pulling in air and checking for mildew spores. And what that allowed us to do is change our spray program. So if you hear people who are kind of anti-organic, I think one of the arguments you're going to hear a lot is that organic sprays aren't as powerful. So you end up spraying more often or more of them. And, you know, that can be true. So what this allowed us to do, so before every 10 days we would spray because that's kind of the effective window of the organic product, whereas for a conventional product, it might be 14 to 20 days. So during that kind of mildew pressure season, we would be spraying every 10 days with this monitoring system where I would say, is there actually mildew spores in the air? And if there's not, then we don't need to spray. So we're able to kind of keep checking on that. So we were actually able to cut back 20% of our spraying passes by doing that. So that's kind of an immediate return. A, in terms of fewer runs of the tractor, fewer spray, so fewer sprays and therefore fewer, or smaller investment in the spray. And then, of course, it's, as we say, it's, it's good IPM. It's that way we're not killing off the yeast that are in the vineyard as well. So I think that's one where we had kind of an immediate return. And then I think another thing is overall, I would say we actually have saved money by eliminating synthetic fertilizers because they're actually fairly expensive and the the process of spreading them. So I think that when you look at our budget, we're spending more on labor for sure, but we're spending less on chemical inputs. And so that's one where, you know, you kind of see that obviously more expense is not a win, but, you know, I'd rather have the guys who are working in the vineyard and it's better to invest in them than it is to invest in chemicals. So you mentioned the Mildew monitoring technology. Are there other technologies that you're leveraging to help you with IPM? We use uh, VineView as well. So they do aerial photography um, several times a year. And so that kind of lets us see where there's high vigor, low vigor, water stress. That's kind of good information for a lot of reasons. It might help us spot like a pest pressure area quicker. It can help us find an irrigation leak because you'll see that there's kind of a a wet, wet section. And, you know, that's not wasting the water, but also any of that excess water is going to be encouraged weeds or other. So that's kind of a, a nice technology to kind of really focus in and that on the vine by vine level. It also, as I was saying about kind of staying ahead of problems, it lets you identify where there might be a problem in the vineyard and start investigating what that is. Maybe before you would visually see it just walking around because you have that overhead view. And then another example, which, you know, a lot of people are doing, but we use water probes to kind of monitor the vine stress to make sure we're only irrigating when we really need to. Of course, with the the drought, that's really important, not necessarily a pest control thing, but just in terms of sustainability and managing the vineyard responsibly to really not just be putting on five gallons of water a week. You know, it's really important to kind of monitor that and to irrigate only when we need to. And of course, that excess water that the vines don't need is feeding other vegetative growth or weeds. So in in a sense, it is kind of feeding into the IPM as well. Biodiversity is an important part of sustainability at Donham. How have you incorporated that into your estate? And any examples like cover crops or the multitude of animals on the property would be great. Yeah, so I was kind of thinking about talking to you guys and I started thinking of biodiversity as kind of like a 
piece of IPM, and then I realized that it's it's the reverse, right? Where like the biodiversity is the the main thing, and that IPM is a recognition of biodiversity. So you're going to have biodiversity no matter what. And then given that, how do you work with it? And so I think that's a really key thought of creating your vineyard ecosystem. A great example is is cover crop. So we do every sixth row, we do native wildflowers. And so that kind of gives insects, we call them insectary rows. We also have those elsewhere on the property outside of the vineyard as well. So that kind of encourages that native insect population. And of course, those are going to prevent, you know, one pest species from taking over because you've got a, a home for all different species of insects. You're going to have that natural competition. And then we'll also introduce predators. So as I, I think I mentioned earlier, that mealybugs are a big problem in vineyards in general, but especially in Carneros. And so we'll several times a year release wasps that they actually like lay their eggs on the mealybugs and so kind of manage them that way. So they're, they're one. And then we also introduce this basically like a beetle called mealybug destroyers those feed on the mealybugs. That's like a really direct example of managing or you know, bringing more biodiversity with these new species of insect and then making sure they have a home in the cover crop. And then by not tilling all your everything away, like you need to have a habitat for those insects, otherwise they're just going to come in and leave. You're not going to eliminate every single mealybug that way, right? Not the way that an insecticide would, but you're managing them to a level that you can deal with. I think another example that like maybe isn't as as obvious is making sure there's a place for raptors within the vineyard so we have owl boxes and raptor perches i think in sonoma county in general you're going to have a big problem with voles and so i think that if you think about that it's like okay how do you make sure that you have somewhere for those raptors to thrive well if you're let's say poisoning (laughs) if you're poisoning the gophers then every time one of these birds catches one you know you're going to be poisoning the birds and so you're kind of like creating like a death spiral where eventually you eliminate the predators and then the gophers can take over so instead of like thinking the opposite well how do we encourage more predators manage the gophers you're not going to get rid of all of them again that way but you're able to manage them to to a manageable level that's a good example with gophers to think about how you set up your farm as well. So one thing that we've done in some of our newer blocks is we've planted prolific rootstocks that'll put out a lot of roots really quickly. And what that does is it allows the vine to kind of outcompete the gopher damage because basically what happens once the vine's established, the amount of damage that the gopher is going to do is going to be somewhat minimal, but on a young vine, they can eat enough of the root system that the plant dies. So that's where you're kind of really, again, going back to that integrated complex system think about how do i set this up from the beginning to be able to compete in the environment that we know it's going into which is you know there's a lot of gophers around i think every ipm practice needs to just have a really awesome name like mealybug destroyer and i think they'll get a lot more <laughs> uptick so just just think about branding those great <laughs> so at donham estate you've got what I think is one of the most beautiful estates in the world with sculptures and art embedded throughout the estate vineyards in Carneros. How does biodiversity work with all that? Yeah, that's a great question. I think our slogan or whatever it might be at Donham is, is wine, art, and land. But I think, you know, the land really is the key to all of that. You know, you wouldn't have the wine for sure. And I think the art wouldn't have the impact that it does if you didn't have the, the land surrounding it. So, 
taking stewardship of that piece of land is the key to the whole thing. And the biodiversity part, you know, because again, like biodiversity, that goes down to everything to the microscopic life in the soil. And that's what makes it all possible. So I think that like in that sense, it's kind of at the back or, or even the forefront of our mind all the time. And of course, I think there's something about having, you know, we have all kinds of wildlife. I think there's nearly a hundred species of birds that pass through the estate, foxes, coyotes, turkeys, all the, the raptors. I think that all kind of contributes to the overall experience of being there. And, and so I think it's really important to the experience is that that you know, part of what makes it what it is, is that the land is at the forefront of our mind. That said, our sculpture cleaning bill is extensive with all the bird traffic. So there's that part of it too. <laughs> Those owls love the sculptures. <laughs> so what's next for Dunham in terms of IPM or biodiversity or both in terms of what would you like to roll out in the coming years? I think to a certain extent, it would be like expanding some of the programs we have in terms of the chicken and ducks. I think it would be really cool to get a small flock of sheep that we could support year round. We wouldn't be able to do our all of our property with that, but it would allow us to kind of graze them in some of the others. We have about 200 acres on the primary state, of which about 100 is vine. So that still leaves 100 acres to be managed in different ways. Um, I've actually been very early, so we'll see, but been talking to someone about setting up essentially a, like a truffle grove. So it would be a grove of trees with the intention of harvesting truffles from them. So that would kind of, I think, be a really cool way to break up that monoculture, which is such a factor in Carneros. Obviously, you guys have been there and it's just vineyards, vineyard after vineyard after vineyard. So that's, I think, a big thing for us is finding ways to break that up. We've got other types of orchard. We've got apple and pear, eucalyptus grove. That to me is like bringing in as much diversity of all types, but plant species specifically, obviously, since we're, we've got so much vineyard to kind of bring some balance back to that, I think is really going to be critical. And then I think to a certain extent, it's like I said about being resilient to change. So we've been in a drought cycle for sure. So we're, we're trying to manage that, but you know, that could change at any time. Um, and, I, and I think that what we're trying to set up is a, a vineyard that, that can deal with different types of shock, different types of changes. So I think it, to an extent, it's kind of just moving forward and kind of allowing the change to develop and, and trying to create that more natural system while at the same time encouraging different, I think four or five times we've seen, you know, a native species of plant pop up on the estate that we'd never seen before. So I think that means that something's happening with the soil where those things are starting to come back. So to me, that's really exciting. And then, yeah, I, like I said, I think IPM is kind of a, a philosophy that we're fully committed to. So it's really just kind of staying open to new developments. In terms of, since you mentioned you have 200 acres and about 100 are planted, is there a target in, in using the lens of biodiversity in terms of planted to unplanted acreage? I think it, it probably really depends on the, the specifics of the property. To me, plenty of people in Carneros are you know 95% vineyard or pl- whatever, or, or 100% minus the, the avenues. Um, we definitely don't want to be there. Uh, I think you know where we are is probably about as much vineyard as we're going to do. And so it's finding what, what, how we use or don't use, you know, letting things kind of like go somewhat back to a natural state is fine too. And a counterexample to that would be our property in Bodega on the Sonoma Coast. That's almost 100 acres. And there we only have 20 planted. Um, and that's kind of a very, it's got much steeper hills. It had a lot of 
forest already there that we weren't going to disturb. And so I think it really does depend on each property. But to the extent that you know you can have more going on than just vineyard, I think it's always going to lead to a healthier ecosystem. So as an industry, what do you think are the most important things people should know about IPM and biodiversity? As I was saying earlier, I think like anyone can benefit from IPM. You know, it doesn't matter what the size or scale of the farm is. I think that it's just a way of thinking. And I think it's really important moving forward. It's it's only going to become more important. But I think that anyone can use those philosophies. Um, Anyone can kind of change their thinking a little bit to start thinking about the whole system uh, a little bit more. My thing that is that I really think in, in vineyards, you don't need herbicides. And that just by eliminating that herbicide component, you're going to increase the biodiversity so much from a soil standpoint. And then I think ultimately you'll see other increases later. But the amount of life that can be in the soil that isn't when herbicides are used, I think is a real problem. So to me, I think that's the, I think something that maybe people have have been hesitant to do just because of you know, looking at the way things were 20 years ago, maybe you are paying people out there to, to hand shovel and hand hoe weeds, and that's not feasible for a lot of projects. That's not the case anymore. There's a lot of new tools available, and it's possible for almost any vineyard to be managed without herbicide. And I think that's like a, would be a great thing to see is to eliminate that from the business. Thanks, Dan. We'd like to wrap up each episode on a personal note. What was the most memorable wine you've drank in the last year, and who did you drink it with? Uh, I think that would probably have been pretty recently for me, definitely a personal one, but, um, had a bottle of 2015 Jill Barge Cote Roti with my wife. And that was the year and the place that we visited on our honeymoon. So we were there in 2015. So happened to see it on a wine list and I thought, oh, we've got to, got to try that. And, uh, really cool wine, definitely on the rustic side, which I think is is always interesting. Awesome. Well, we want to thank you for your time and your knowledge and sharing this with us and our listeners. We greatly appreciate it. Thanks, guys. It was really great to talk to you. I really appreciate it. Don't forget to support the show at xchateau.com or patreon.com slash xchateau. Thanks for joining us. If you loved this episode of X Chateau, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and give a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. Until next time, cheers.